Welcome to Refresh, a podcast designed to revive, recharge, and renew your faith and give you the tools to follow Jesus. Refresh comes to you from the Salvation Army in Gwinnett County, Georgia. We meet in person every Sunday at 1030 a.m. or online on Facebook and YouTube at Sal Army Gwinnett. We are excited that you have joined us this week and pray that God will bring his word to life. And now for our speaker. Peter, he's gone. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. He's disappeared. And when he heard this, Peter and the other disciples quickly, they, they got up from where they were, and they they ran straight to the tomb as fast as they could. Peter was a little slower than the rest of them, the scripture says, but eventually he got there, and they waited for Peter to look in first. And when he stuck his head in there, and when they arrived, what they saw was an empty tomb. No one was there. The burial linens that, that were wrapped around Jesus after the crucifixion were there, they were neatly folded in the place where Jesus was laid down. There was no explanation, there was no reason, there was no logic as to why anyone would come in and steal the body of Jesus. This was the only explanation to the disciples at that moment in time is that someone came in and stole Jesus. People just don't leave the grave once they go in, you know. That's not the order of things. And even after spending three years of following this man, day in and day out, following him, seeing him heal the sick, feed the hungry, cast out demons, walk on water, calm the storm, after witnessing all of these things, They still didn't understand that Jesus is more powerful than death. For on that day, he did walk out of the grave. He is risen. And that's not just for Easter. He is risen today. And so after Jesus revealed himself to all the disciples, after They were all surprised and shocked that he was alive once again. He gathered the remaining 11 and he took them to a mountain on the side in Galilee there. And when they all saw him, when they all were in the presence of Jesus after his death, in his presence, in human physical form, they did what is the only right thing to do. They fell and worshipped him. They worshipped him. And knowing that he was about to leave, knowing that he was about to return back to his father, Jesus gathers the disciples and he tells them right then on the side of this mountain, he tells them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, my disciples, 
I am with you always, to the very end of the age. And then right then after he said this, according to scripture, he ascended to heaven to be with the Father. And I think if I had to go back and reread this story as I did, I think that had to have been the moment, seeing him after his death, standing with them in physical form on the side of a mountain, hearing him speak yet again, and then watching him on his terms go to heaven, but not on man's terms, as he's standing there ascending to the Father. I think that that had to be the moment when the disciples finally fully understood the depth and power of who Jesus was. Because from that moment, Fear wasn't something that kept them down. They looked at each other and said, now, now it's time to go to work. Let's pray together. Father, we come into your presence right now. And we ask for your understanding on the words of your scripture. Lord, we don't want to walk out when we're diving in and opening your bread of life, your words to us and walk away confused or even less known of what it is you want from us. But God, we pray right now specifically for there to be clarity and understanding of your word. God, I pray if everything I say from this place be only the gospel truth, anything I say that isn't, correct me on the spot, Lord. Don't even let me say it. But Father, I pray this in the name of the same Jesus that we're preaching about today. Amen. 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 Well, today, my friends, we are starting a, a new series called Our House. Uh, now, this is going to be a four-week look into what we all call the church. Now, we call it coming to church, going to church. But we're going to look into what makes up the actual church, the infrastructure of it, the mission and purpose of it. Why is it even here to begin with? Is it so that we can come to it? Is that why? We're going to look at it, at the church, our house. If you are not a believer, a current believer in Jesus Christ, what you're going to get for the next four weeks is an inside look into the purpose, mission, and why the church exists so that you can hold us accountable to it, because it's built out of love and truth. And so this is what we're going to be diving into for the next several weeks. So I'm going to start off by asking a question, is have you ever asked anyone or someone in your, your, your influence or circle that maybe does or doesn't come to church, have you ever asked them what they think about the church, what their thoughts are, their impressions are, of the church, what, they're, uh, what, what they think about going to a church or attending a church. Now, the responses, I assure you, will, be, will vary from person to person. It won't be the same. It'll be different. Their responses may inspire feelings of anger or sadness even in some cases, where others, without hesitation, will bring joy and hope and it varies. And this is because the church that we are a part of isn't defined 
by one specific experience. That's not the church. By one moment in time. It's not like our trip when we off to go to Disney World or something like that, where you know what you're getting when you go. You have the rides, you have the shows, you have the characters, you have the really long lines and the expenses and the things that go with that, right? You pretty much know before you even step foot on the, say, a theme park or like Disney, that if that's going to be your thing or not. After, now you may go, you may experience it, and after you go to the actual theme park, you might walk out of that experience pleasantly surprised. You know what? I actually enjoy that. That was a fun time. Great memories. Or you're going to walk out of there with uh, just another confirmation on why I am not a theme park person. Right? <laughs> like these, are, these, these are kind of the two end goals that we're going to reach out if we go to a place like that. Now, the church is not a theme park. Or it shouldn't be. It's not a theme park. Now, there are characters. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. And usually there's not long lines waiting for to see them, you know. But there are characters. Don't get me wrong. But the, the church itself isn't a theme park, a thing that we market and sell to the, to the mass public. That's not the design or the intent for it. Now, for the next four weeks, here's what we're going to do. We're going to explore four congregational values, is what we're going to look into, that should define our relationships with one another and with those who are not in the church, our relationships with humanity. And those four things are commission, community, commandment, and collaboration. We're going to look at these four things that make up the church. Commission, community, commandment, and collaboration. And so today, naturally, we're going to dive into commission. We're going to look at that for just a moment. Commission. In fact, we just heard it a moment ago when we started the message. The Great Commission is probably something that every believer with a couple of years of believing under your belt, can probably quote from memory, the Great Commission. I've been to churches where I've seen it painted on the wall. I've seen it on the uh, one church as they were walking out, leaving their, their lobby, going into the, to, to the parking lot. It was plastered right above the exit door. And it said, now here you enter the mission field. And it was right on the exit door. The Great Commission, Right? Now, all of us, probably when we hear the Great Commission, just like I did a moment ago, we can kind of have this image, or we can at least feel like we were there maybe when Jesus was speaking it on the side of this mountain, giving the Great Commission to the disciples, telling them to go and make disciples of all nations, and then watching them ascend. We could probably just, like a movie, just watch this happening inside of our minds. And then actually... If we turn the page at the end of the Gospels over to Acts, then we can see what the Great Commission actually looks like. There's a whole book on it called the Acts of the Commission in Action. But for those who were with him that day on the side of the mountain, there was no 
Bible. There were no fancy messages on top of the exit doors of your church. There was no history or historical knowledge of the Great Commission, no book of Acts that they can go and reflect into. For those who were there on the side of that mountain, the 11 disciples, they've heard this for the first time. And for them, it shouldn't have come as a surprise that this would be what Jesus leaves us with. The fact that Jesus was telling them to now go out. That the job wasn't done. That he wasn't saying, okay, you've been faithful to me. You've followed me around for three years and you've given up a lot. You've sacrificed a bit. So now go and be merry. Go back home. Forget about the last three years. No, it was, now you've seen it. You've seen my power. You've seen my authority. Now go and make disciples of all nations. Because this gift isn't for just Israel, but is born from Israel into the world. Now go. They've been hearing Jesus say this in one way or another for years. He most commonly used the analogy of a shepherd and his sheep. We heard him reference that all the time, how he was the shepherd. We are the sheep. And he would go out and he would find us and bring us. He would use us often over and over again. And then he would, he would even refer to a farmer and his harvest. He would go out and harvest. These are things that Jesus said over and over again, like what we find in Matthew chapter 9 that was read today by Andrew which is the chapter we're going to look into for the commission. Well, wait, why aren't we looking at the Great Commission? Well, hold on. I want to look at Matthew 9 for the commission. And so in this particular chapter, when we're looking into the section here about the harvest, Jesus is leaning right now on a subject that all the disciples would have had experience in. He's speaking their language. He wants to say something that they understand, that they can grasp hold of and say, I get that. And so he's going to talk to them about farming, about the acts of farming and the meaning of farming. He's going to use this analogy with them. And so verse 35 in Matthew 9 starts with this word, with these words. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Now that was just 35. That was one verse. Now this, verse 35, is a great one sentence synopsis of what Jesus has been doing for the last two chapters. That, and actually, let's, let's actually take a look just here from what he went through all the towns actually means. When, when the author wrote that down, that he went from town to town. Let's look and see what that means. Now follow me here. For the last two chapters, leading up to this moment, Jesus has done the following. He's healed the centurion's servants, healed Peter's mother-in-law from a fever, 
He calmed the storm with only two words. He healed two demon-possessed men, healed a paralytic man, called a tax collector, oh, those guys are the word, tax collector, to come follow him. He brought back a little girl from the dead. He healed a woman from bleeding. He healed the blind and the mute. And this is just in the last two chapters. And now Matthew, the author, writes that Jesus went to all the towns and villages teaching and healing because this is what Jesus does. This is what he does. But the question that you and I ask is why? Why does he do this? It has always been the question of why throughout history. Why did Jesus do this? Why did he go from town to town doing these things? And the answer is written out for us in the very next verse. It's because when Jesus saw the crowds, when he saw the people, when he went into a town or community, when he saw the blind and the mute and the demon-possessed and he saw the sick, the scripture says he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. Not disdain, oh, get away from me. Oh, you're not worth it. You're not, you're not what I'm looking for. But he had compassion. That's what I want. That's who I'm here for right there. And he isn't. He isn't a God that's on a pedestal, but he's one that is with his people. In the middle of it all. In the mix of it all. He, see this one here, is that our God, you're my God, through his son Jesus, does not expect you to make yourself perfect and cleanse on your own before you approach him. But instead, he will do that after him. He wants to meet you where you're at right now. And then he will do all the cleaning himself. He'll do it himself. He will save. He will clean. He will heal. He will sanctify. And this is because when Jesus looked out into the earth, when he looked out to us, he saw all of us, including me. All of us wandering around without a shepherd. With no direction, no indication on where to go. Harassed and helpless. And it was in that attitude, in that spirit, in this sentiment, that Jesus stopped. He stopped his disciples. And he made sure they knew his heart. Before he left, before he would go to be with the Father, he wanted his disciples to know his heart. He wanted his followers to know why. Why? He said, gather around. The harvest, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And then he said something really interesting. He said, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his field. 
The harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. But ask the Lord of the harvest to send out the workers into the field. Do you hear just in this small response from Jesus? Do you hear his heart, his concern, his legitimate concern that there are not enough workers? This is what Jesus is saying. He says, we have a massive amount of harvest. I just don't have enough workers. Now, this is uh, not a game to Jesus. He isn't doing this. He's not going town to town, saving and healing and bringing back from the dead. He's not doing these things for, for just glory and fame and namesake. He is doing it because he loves those who are hurting. Those who are shepherdless. He loves those people. And this is not coming from a spirit of proving that he's right and you're wrong. Oftentimes, the earthly motivation of why we do something is that under agenda of, well, I just, you know, I was always right and you were wrong. Let me show you. And there was none of that in this. Or it wasn't a contest to see who can bring in the most souls to the kingdom. Jesus shut that down. He's speaking out of love and expressing in this moment a great concern to the church. A huge concern that the harvest is plentiful, but we just don't have the workers. Now, unlike previous times when, when Jesus used this type of analogy, and he's used it before, with shepherds and sheep and these sorts of things, but when he, unlike those other previous times, this one has a direct, and I'm talking direct, Focus on the worker, on the laborer. This is what Jesus is focusing on right now. He says the workers are few, he says. There is a direct call to action to believers. Jesus saw human need. He saw human need as the harvest. And he saw that it was plentiful. That human need itself is the harvest and there's lots of it and I don't know about you and me but I've seen it increase over the last two years that human need has gone off the rockets here I've sat through community meetings with other nonprofits, and they're expressing one after another saying we just can't meet the need there's just too many of them we just don't have enough volunteers. We don't have enough funding. We don't have enough. We don't have enough. We don't have enough. Nonprofit after nonprofit. The need is skyrocketing. But I'm going to say that here, that Jesus is also telling us in the midst of this great need, of this great harvest that we're experiencing, that he's telling us to pay attention to the actual harvest. To pay attention to it. Don't ignore it. Don't run it onto the car. To pay attention to the harvest. Because, he says, it can be used for good. Now, he isn't saying that the hurt, the hunger, the sickness, that all those things are good. No, no, no. He's not saying that at all. In fact, those were never meant to be good. Those are a sign of a fallen humanity who has been filled with sin. Is that this type of harvest? But what he's saying is that the church is in a position to do something about it. 
This is where we are. We don't have to sit idly by, helpless and hopeless, but we understand that the world is hurting and in pain. And the church has the tools to do something about it. To do something about it. If only, if only we get more funding, mm -mm. if only we get more volunteers, maybe. If only we had compassion like Jesus. If only we saw the harvest the way he did. From the very beginning, the harvest has required workers. From the very beginning. For as long as there have been uh, books on leadership, and let me assure you, I've had my share of those, but those books on leadership, there has been this theory floating around for a very long time called the 80-20 rule. In fact, I recall this being taught to me as a cadet in training, the 80-20 rule. And what this rule states is that regardless of what type of group that you're in, where no matter where you are or what part you're in, that only 20% of the people in that group will do 80% of the actual work. Now, I want you to look back in life, and you will probably find that that's a pretty true statement. I want you to think back to your high school group where they said, all right, everyone, find a partner, two or three of you, and then you're going to do this project, you're going to do this assignment, and then, well, I mean, I wasn't, you know, what did we do? All right, which, we're going to find the one, who's the worker? You want to be in my group? Cool, come on in. And then uh, just tell me whatever you need. And it, probably if it was four of you, you know that one of you actually did the actual project. And then the three of you were like, yeah, this good. that's it. This is a team effort, team effort, you know. And the one person's like, team effort, team effort, right? We've all been there. We know that's true. We know it's true. And the church isn't exempt from this. Right? Because we're all human. We're all people. We're not exempt from this. In fact, there actually is a genuine labor shortage. There really is. And we all know what that's like these days. We hear it on the radio all the time, uh, social media, TV, whatever. Wherever you're sort, you hear labor shortage, labor shortage, labor shortage. And I'm just coming off of a season where I was trying to hire 100 to 150 people to come work for me. And I got 15. Let me tell you. There is a labor shortage. I tried every gimmick I could think of besides maybe putting a dress on with the tambourine. Maybe I should try that. I don't know, but I tried everything else. There is a labor shortage. And it's always been that way. It's always been that way. Like the world, the church too has a labor shortage. It has been the 20% of the church throughout history that has created 80% of its legacy. This isn't new. This isn't new. So knowing, knowing that the workers are few, what should we do? And the answer is written for us. It's written for us. Jesus says, pray. Pray. That's what he says. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Jesus is no dummy. 
He knows that a pure and honest heart, one who's seeking after him, filled with genuine compassion, will indeed pray this prayer. Lord, what should we do? And that person who prays will find the response. They will hear a voice back. And it will say, my child, go. For the harvest is waiting for you. Friends, you and I are the laborers. While we accept Christ into our heart, we accept him to cleanse us, sanctify us, so that we can go and share it with others. But none of this, none of this means anything unless, unless you and I see the harvest the same way Jesus did. He didn't see it as an inconvenience, as too much work. He was not a farmer who had disdain for the harvest. I have yet met a far, any farmer who went out and looked to his fields and said, and cursed the Lord for a plentiful harvest. Who cursed the harvest for being too much or too big and having to get extra hands to come and help. Every farmer knows. And I grew up in West Texas, surrounded by farmlands, mainly cotton out there. But even farm, I see them in their tractors going back and forth. But every farmer knows that the harvest is a gift from God. And how do I know that? When Jesus went from town to town, he saw the hurting, the sick. He saw the lost as a gift from God. Because there is one thing, one thing that I left off earlier when looking back at the last two chapters, after he'd done all these miraculous things and healings. You see, when he was healing the sick, when he was giving sight to the blind, when he was casting out demons, when he was raising the dead back to life, not everyone was accepting. Some of the harvest wasn't ready to receive. For every miracle he performed in those last two chapters, there was a person right there accusing him of blasphemy as a man with no morals, that he was a liar, that he was a deceiver, that he was ungodly for doing these things. And yes, there was even one occasion when he was accused of being sent from Satan for healing a person. There were some of the harvest of the sheep that were not willing or ready to follow the shepherd. Yes, it's true. But even after all of that, after all of the accusations, after saying that you are sent from Satan, we still get verse 36, which says when he saw the crowds, when he saw the hurting, and when he saw the unbelieving, he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. Friends, the harvest isn't the problem. The harvest isn't the problem. They are in desperate need of a shepherd. 
trick is you and I know the shepherd. And we need to get the harvest and the laborer together. Who in here will show them the way? That is the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, of all nations. Father, we just pray right now. We pray for our heart, Lord, our soul, our mind. But as we dive into here in this word commission, to let our feet not be idle, but to go. God, perhaps it's courage we need. And if there's anyone on the sound of my voice that, that needs just a, a sense of courage or maybe just a little push on the back just to, just to get us going, God, I pray for that now. To be reminded that we are not, we are not living in fear, but we are living through your power, through your spirit, Lord. That God, now I pray this prayer that on the minds of all of your believers that are hearing this today, I pray that you give us one person, one name in our mind that we can reach out to, that we can lean in toward, that we can be a an example of God. That we have the courage to reach out, to make the phone call, to invite to lunch. God, may we, may we actually be, Father, that laborer bringing the message of salvation, freedom to the world. So this is our prayer on this Sunday, Lord. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Refresh. Be sure to hit subscribe and like us on Facebook and YouTube to never miss an episode. If you liked what you heard, be sure to share it with your friends and family. We pray that you will be refreshed and ready to take on your week. See you next time. God bless.